Hello, and welcome to the Animal Behavior Podcast. I'm Matthew Zippel. You're about to hear the second episode in our Dispatches from the Field series from my trip to the Kalahari Research Center in South Africa. The first episode we did in this series was my conversation with Tim Kluttenbrock, which if you haven't listened to yet, you'll find lower in your feeds. And the second episode is a conversation that I recorded with Jenny Tung, a MacArthur Fellow and the director of the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology. Jenny is an evolutionary anthropologist and behavioral ecologist who uses molecular techniques, think epigenetics, uh, the genome, and gene expression, to understand animal behavior and its evolution. She has worked on a number of projects in both captive and wild primate populations, trying to understand how the physical and social environments shape animals' behavior and physiology, and the role of genetics and epigenetics in that process. In our conversation today, we focus on two areas of inquiry that her lab has led, working with the Ambicelli baboons. First, we talk about her work to understand hybridization and the selection pressures and behaviors involved in hybridization. And second, we discuss biological age and epigenetic techniques for measuring biological age. Throughout, Jenny makes a compelling case that molecular approaches shed light on otherwise hidden aspects of animal behavior and that these approaches are becoming increasingly accessible to ever more researchers and are increasingly deployable in the field. One note before we start, we recorded this conversation while we drove on a remote highway in South Africa, so we've edited out the noise from our car and the road, which has led to the sound quality being just a bit below our usual standards, but I think it's still totally worth listening to, and you might find that wearing headphones makes it a bit easier to consume. As always, you can let us know what you think at animalbehaviorpod at gmail.com, and here's my conversation with Jenny Tung. You're the first kind of geneticist, first molecular biologist, I would say, that we've had on the show. And so I want to start with just kind of the pitch that you would give to behavioral ecologists who don't focus on or perhaps think a whole lot about molecular measures, what they have to tell us about animal behavior. Well, I think most behavioral, well, many behavioral ecologists are interested in how the behavior of their study subjects influences how those, how those subjects do long-term, right? Whether they're successful or not, whether they have high fitness or low fitness, whether they live longer. And some of those processes are going to be exogenous, right? They get eaten by an eagle or, or not. But many of those processes necessarily are going to happen under the skin, right? There's this sort of phrase that actually gets used in a lot of social sciences when they talk about social gradients and health. You know, how does how does an experience that has to do with relationships with other individuals nevertheless, quote-unquote, get under the skin to influence health? And I think it's an equally valid question to ask about how the behavioral and social processes that behavioral ecologists observe, quote-unquote, get under the skin to produce these kinds of fitness outcomes. So if you want to have a complete understanding of how you're going from A to B, even if you're motivated in this kind of Tim Burkean ultimate sense, it can be useful to understand the processes that get you there. And I think some types of molecular approaches help you in that regard. They can also give you some more clues into the places in the genome that may have been targeted by social, socially mediated selection. And one of the beautiful things about genomics is that there are many ways to do it in a relatively unbiased fashion. So it means it might give you some ideas that you didn't a priori have. Right. For instance, we, we see a lot of effects on the immune system. And maybe there are many people who would have said, well, if I think about so the evolution of social relationships, then probably that involves you know, selection relating to immune genes. But I think actually a lot of people would have gone in different directions first. And, and so it opens the door to, to understand your system in ways that you might not think about without taking those kinds of approaches. I mean, I also think that maybe this is more of a pitch to geneticists than it is, or evolutionary geneticists than it is to behavioral ecologists, but if you want to understand the genetic structure of your study system, in many species, by and large, that's determined by behavior. And it's determined, right, by who is moving where and who mates when they get there. And so if you want to understand the basic outlines, the basic descriptions of, of sort of what you see in front of you in space and time, then you probably need to pay some attention to behavior. Nice. So I want to start with the study system on which you spend most of your scientific effort, Ambicelli baboons. 
So you're a co-director of the MSLE Babylon Research Project. Uh, in season one, we talked with Susan Alberts. There's some pretty good description of the system there, but just briefly, if you could get people up to speed on what the MSLE Babylon Research Project is, and then in particular describe the relationship between yellow and Anubis baboons there. Okay, sure. Okay, so baboons are a species of primate that belongs to this group that are commonly called old world monkeys. They're monkey species that live in, in Africa and Asia today. They are fairly closely related to humans. You know, you can think about splitting, they split about 25 million years ago. And baboons are a group of old world monkeys that are perhaps particularly interesting to study because like humans, they are large bodied, terrestrial, obligately social, meaning they, they always live in social groups with one another. And um, they have some logistical benefits as well, you know, being ground living and often living in, in physical places, you can get really nice data from them. So there have been many long-term studies um, and short-term studies of wild baboons because of those and other reasons. And I have the great fortune to be involved in one of the longest running such studies, which is the one that you refer to, the Ambicelli Baboon Research Project. The Ambicelli Baboon Project is um, now a 52-year-long continuous study of wild baboons in the southern part of Kenya, right where Kenya meets the border of Tanzania. It was founded by Jean and Stuart Altman in 1971. And the project has been following individually recognized animals in, in this study population. These days, typically about 250 to 300 animals at a given time since 1971. Of course, they're not the same individuals. They're the descendants of the individuals um, that were originally followed. So now the, the study population as a whole includes about 2,000 individuals that have been followed across their life course, if we can, you know, from cradle to grave. And it collects complementary data on the demography of these groups, births, deaths, immigrations, emigrations, and so on. Detailed information about social behavior, how you know individually recognized animals interact with other animals that they also individually recognize and form enmities or you know friendships as as it may be, and how those change over time. We collect genetic data and hormone data and sometimes parasite data to try and understand the things that affect the lives of these baboons and how what environmental exposures they have affects, you know, again, kind of what happens under their skin. And we seek overall to understand what makes some baboons do better or worse from either a health or a fitness perspective using this kind of life course perspective that integrates what happened to them early on and later in life. And so today, the directors of the project are Beth Archie at University of Notre Dame and Susan Alberts, who was on this podcast before, as you mentioned, at Duke University, and me. I spent my time between Duke and the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology in Leipzig, Germany, and Jean Altman, the, the founder of the project, uh, is an emerita director who often advises us and weighs in on various types of things. So that's kind of some background on the project. Okay, so baboons are actually a genus of primates, and currently we recognize six different species within that genus, which are distributed across Africa and parts of Arabia. You can find baboons, they're really generalist, adaptable primates, pretty much everywhere in that space, other than in deep rainforest and in, and in desert. And where we happen to work is the border between the range of a baboon species called the yellow baboon, Papiocynocephalus, and the Anubis or olive baboon, Papio Anubis. And so when Jean and Stuart first came out and started studying the population, they actually write in their book, Baboon Ecology, that there was no doubt that the animals they were watching were yellow baboons. Everybody agreed. Um, maybe there was some morphological you know, nuances that suggested they were a particular morphotype, but they were yellow baboons. And then in 1982, Jean and her student, Amy Samuels, watched the first immigration that happened, at least during the course of the project, of 
individuals who looked really Anubis-like. Anubis baboons are sort of darker and they look um, sort of more robust compared to sort of apparently to a visual eye, sort of taller and more gracile yellow baboons who have lighter color pellage. So there, there are a lot of these morphological cues that observers can use to tell them apart. So they watched these animals come into their population, and some of them integrated into the groups they were studying at the time, and some of them mated with individuals in those study groups, and they had offspring, and all of a sudden we had a hybrid population that we watched develop in real time. And they described this in a paper published in 1986. And periodically, animals kept on coming in, and they kept on integrating, and we got this increasingly complex mixture of individuals who were more yellow-like and more Anubis-like. We thought, when I was a graduate student, that most of the individuals were basically unadmixed yellow baboons, and maybe a quarter of them or so had some Anubis ancestry based on kind of limited genetic technology at the time, microsatellite-based genotypes, and based on what we knew from our pedigree records. We got more and more interested in studying this pattern because it turned out that how Anubis-like or how yellow-like particular animals were affected things that we found important, we thought that were important to the baboons. Like, more Anubis-like animals seem to reach menarche earlier, so sort of sexual maturation. And the males dispersed earlier, meaning that when they achieved full sexual maturity, or typically when they achieve full sexual and sort of social maturity, they leave their groups in search of reproductive opportunities elsewhere. This is something that we believe minimizes inbreeding, you know, so breeding and mating and production of offspring among relatives. So Anubis-like animals seem to do that sooner. And they seemed, when we controlled for things like social status and availability, to like to mate with each other at uh, a bit of an elevated rate compared to what we might expect by chance, which is particularly interesting because that kind of thing, which we call assortative mating, meaning sort of like meets like, is something that can have important effects on whether two species actually stay separate if they come into contact again or they sort of collapse into, into one species. So really what we're I'm describing here, right, are behavioral phenotypes that all of a sudden we were like, oh, these seem to be implicated, influenced by the genetic differences in this population. So that motivated us to do more genetic work. Which this, I really see this as a very iterative process where all the original observations were behavioral and then there was a little genetic work and it looked sort of interesting and then we had to appeal to the behavioral data to say, is this in fact interesting to us? Does this matter to our organisms? And then we really had to go back to the genomic data or go, go to genomic data when it became possible to produce to learn more. And when we did this in work... Um, it kind of has emerged over the last five or six years, but where we really, I think, did the most in a paper that came out last year. It was led by two graduate students of mine, Horace Vilgelis and, and Ariel Fogel. What we did is we just sequenced the whole genomes of a bunch of individuals that we know in the population, because we can do that now in a somewhat cost-effective manner. And that told us something that was actually quite surprising, which was that everybody in our population was, in fact, hybrid. Right. And Jean and Amy were right, and the subsequent papers were right, that there was been this recent wave of hybridization that had changed the genetic landscape and morphological landscape and behavioral landscape of our population in a very rapid sort of way, but that there had been all this stuff that had happened a long time ago. You know, Ambicelli is now 52 years and, and going strong, and so it's one of the longest-running field studies of large mammals in the world. And that's a long time in certain ways, but it's not long enough, right? We are totally blind to thousands, millions of years of evolutionary change and movement and migration and, you know, sort of social drama on the savannas that just, like, it falls off a cliff before 1971, but the genetic data can tell us something about that. It can help fill in. And that's what it told us. They're all hybrids. This is probably a much more complex evolutionary scenario than we had realized that the behavioral benefits to being more Anubis-like matter in our population today, but if the tape or if the story unfolds the way it probably has in the past, this won't just make them all collapse into one species, and this is something that's probably happening with recontact over time. I mean, the behavioral data are also very useful, of course, because 
you know, the genetics. We followed a lot of the sort of playbook from people who study human evolution and contact with archaic hominins. Um, they don't have any phenotypic data. We see a lot of the same sort of signatures of, you know, selection against free intermixing that they do. But we're able to also look at our animals and go, yeah, they're behaviorally different, but they're I mean, they're certainly not as different in terms of fitness outcomes as people have implied based on genetic data alone. So to me, it's a really beautiful story of how we actually need the richness of genetic data, the sort of time scale that that's informative about to understand what's going on in our populations. But the genetic data are really, they can also by themselves lead to a lot of misconceptions about what might be phenotypically happening in a population. You know, get to see signatures of selection really as they walk around, you know, in the wild. And I really like that. Yeah, can you spell out a little bit what it means when you say that you saw they're all hybrids? Like, just step oh, us through, like, yeah. what does that actually mean when you look at the data? Yeah, so what it means is that um, the, two, the two species that mix in Ampicelli and the surrounding regions, yellow baboons and Anubis baboons, they're not actually, as far as baboons go, particularly closely related to each other. We think that they probably split off and evolved largely independently from one another about like maybe one and a half million years ago or so. So they've been kind of doing their own thing for some time. And what that means is that they are genetically evolving independently for some time so that at a particular region in the genome, if we see a base pair at that place, a cytosine base, a C, right, in a sequence of letters of, that make up DNA, that that's something that is fairly diagnostic of being a yellow baboon and that you don't really find in Anubis animals that have evolved largely independently from yellow baboons for some time. But then when you take genomes of Anubis baboons and yellow baboons and you mash them together into hybrids, that if you have this sort of genomic sequence, you can sort of scan across the genome, and maybe you run into that place where that C is located, and you see a C there, you see two Cs, for example, because you have two copies of the genome, one from mom and one from dad, and each individual. And you, then you can say with some level of statistical confidence that both of those copies of the genome at that particular location in the genome came from you know, I forget which one I associated with that, like with an Anubis baboon ancestor, right? Versus if you see two T's in that exact spot, you can say, ah, this is actually probably from a yellow baboon. And so what we're able to do with genome sequences is not just give you one number, but give you one number, right? One copy from, from an Anubis ancestor, two copies from an Anubis ancestor, zero copies from an Anubis ancestor, as we just walk along the genome. In some places, in these admixed genomes, will be yellow, and some will be Anubis, and some will be half yellow and half Anubis. And that gives us an ability combined together to say, well, one, lots of individuals have segments of their genomes, at least in this population, that look like they came from Anubis ancestry. In fact, all of them have some of it. And that's what I mean when I say, well, they're all hybrids. It's just when they last had an Anubis great-great-great-grandparent or great-great-great-great-great-great-grandparent differs in time. And we can see that with this kind of data. And there are places in the genome where you're more or less likely to find hybridization? Yes, we think so. Um, <laughs> yes, we think so. We haven't done a thorough analysis of this okay. yet. But we know some things. For example, if there's something that keeps these two species from just collapsing into one, you know, mixture, one in undifferentiated mixture, then that would typically require some sort of selection against admixture, some sort of reason why hybrids or individuals who are hybrid at particular places in the genome don't do as well ultimately don't leave as many offspring behind and brand offspring behind as individuals who aren't admixed. So when we look for signatures of selection against admixture, in other words, genomic clues that you can't just collapse the two species back again, what we're looking for are places that seem to be more resistant to material, genetic material from the two species moving back and forth freely. So 
we're looking for places where that looks less likely to pop up than we would expect by chance. And so we see places like that. We see places like that that are um, really suggestive. Like that tends to happen more, right? Like reduced Anubis ancestry, reduced Anubis content in the genomes of our animals than we would expect by chance near genes, near parts of the genome that we have reason to believe regulate genes, near genes where the activity, the regulation of those genes we believe to be quite different between yellow bevins and Anubis bevins. And the reason that's interesting is because it's saying, okay, the sort of hand of selection is taking out antigrest ancestry where it's doing something and potentially doing something quite important. And we don't know what it's doing. That's like a real gap that we'd like to fill. Like, what exactly is it doing? Um, why, why are those particular regions of the genome verboten, right, for introgression? And others can just kind of move back and forth. It doesn't matter to the animals. So we see these kinds of signatures, and we'd like to break them down much further, and especially think about what they might have to do with the behavior of the animals or their life history just to understand the kind of evolutionary story that you laid out. Yep. Right now it seems like there are benefits to having more Anubis background in terms of some of the things you described. Earlier maturation, greater mating success. So that would, if that went on for hundreds of years in the population, then presumably you would get quite a large increase in Anubis. Yeah, that's right. But you're saying that this has been happening for a very long time and yet you've never gotten, you know, this population is, has remained mixed. So which I guess means that under some contexts, it's no longer useful to be Anubis in environmental context. Is that right? That's possible. So that's one possibility is that they're doing better in some environmental contexts, whether it's because they do better when it's cooler and wetter that's been proposed, or maybe whether they do better in certain social contexts. That's a possibility. I think another real possibility is that, you know, when we study behaviors like dispersal and mating, we focus on that one behavior, and then we say, okay, here, this predictor variable points to the good way or the bad way as we construe it, right, from a fitness perspective. But what's actually happening to define the dynamics of a population is all of the things that are fitness influencing together, right? In other words, there's a calculus of whether or not Introgression will be favored, you know, movement from Anubis, increases Anubis ancestry will be favored or not. And that calculus relates to the whole organism across its whole lifetime. So, in fact, yeah, maybe they're dispersing earlier. Maybe that is, as we interpreted originally, like a good thing. But actually, it might not be a good thing if it trades off against their ability to compete in that group afterwards, or if they die earlier, or maybe it still absolutely is a good thing and there's no trade-off, but the degree to which that's a good thing simply doesn't outcompete the things that, you know, Anubis answer does that are bad things. That you right? might not be measuring yet. Yeah, uh -huh. so we're, we're always looking at, like, fragments of, of the whole picture. And one of the things that we like about life course studies, even though we rarely get the whole picture, is that we have the potential to, to think about the animal and what's happening early on and what's happening later on. And maybe there's all these fitness-correlated traits. But, but you need to know not only that they're fitness-correlated. In other words, you, you need to not only know whether they're like going in the good direction or going in the bad direction, but what the weight of that good and bad direction, what the effect of that is on the organism's success as a whole. So... One rather enticing and interesting possibility in the hybrid context is that, you know, the bits of Anubis genomes that do good things, meaning that increase fitness for hybrids, they stick around. And all the things that do bad things and prevent a complete collapse of populations, they get eliminated. And those are things that we may be able to pick up in genetic data, right? At least you get to find places where that's, that seem to be sticking around, and you get to find places that seem to not be allowed to stick around. And then the field data, the phenotypic data, might give you a clue to why that is the case. And then in pure populations, because they're not, there isn't that access to the genetic variation from the alternative species, you don't yeah. get that kind of same kind of change. You wouldn't expect it. Right. Unless it's like 
like the good things, the good right. bits are yeah. really, really powerful, then you might actually expect a pattern where as you move more and more into unadmixed populations that don't have any direct contact with Anubis baboons, for example, yellow populations don't have contact with Anubis baboons themselves, that those advantageous pieces of the genome move spatially further into the range. So that's a pattern that people sometimes look for in these kind of hybrid zones. I just love that work because it's such a nice, to me, illustration of what genetic analysis and what field data can do to compensate for each other's blind spots. Okay, so let's talk about epigenetics. People have different kind of baseline thoughts in their mind about what one means by epigenetics. Maybe just start out by talking about the kinds of epigenetic things you can measure in baboons. So often what people mean by epigenetics are, well, actually lots of people just today, especially in genomics, will use the term epigenetics to mean essentially gene regulation. You know, things that influence how, when, and how much of a, a gene product is produced. And so lots of mechanisms are epigenetic mechanisms, including the action of non-coding RNAs and uh, certainly histone marks and DNA methylation. Sometimes people will talk about even chromatin organization as epigenetic. Other people insist that epigenetic must mean something that is faithfully transmitted across cell divisions. And we know that DNA methylation in mammals like us and vertebrates is faithfully, can be faithfully transmitted across mitosis. We know the mechanisms through that works, through how that works how that happens, and so that's why it's often particularly indicated as an epigenetic mechanism. DNA methylation refers to the chemical modification of DNA sequence in mammals like us. We're typically talking about cytosine bases, specifically where cytosine bases, Cs, in the DNA sequence are followed by Gs, by guanine bases. So where that happens, there's this chemical potential to either add a carbon and three hydrogens, a methyl group, to a part of the cytosine base or not. So actually on any given strain of DNA, it either is there or it's not there. But across many copies of DNA, you could either have them 100% there or 0% there or somewhere in the middle. And so when people say DNA methylation levels, they're talking about some sort of measure of like, are all the C's at this place? Do they all have this chemical mark? Or none of them have this chemical mark? Or 50% of them have this chemical mark or whatever. And so DNA methylation is something that I think gets studied a lot in the context of environmental responses that might have long-lasting impacts because everybody agrees that there's a mechanism through which it can survive and be faithfully, relatively faithfully replicated across cell divisions. And frankly, also because it's a very accessible type of epigenetic modification to measure. A lot of this other stuff, you need samples that are preserved in a particular way or you need to deal with them very quickly. So I should say that I don't necessarily think DNA methylation is the most interesting or important gene regulatory mechanism to study, but it is accessible and it is interesting, you know, in some regards. This is related to work on so-called epigenetic clocks. You could make an epigenetic clock out of a lot of things. You could do use other mechanisms, but people use DNA methylation largely, again, because it's really accessible, measured in old samples, it's pretty stable over time. What people are doing is measuring levels of DNA methylation at many, many sites across the genome. You know, it's actually very easy now to measure it at hundreds of thousands or millions of sites in the genome. And it turns out that some subset of those sites carry a lot of information about how old their donor was, the donor of that sample actually was. And so you can use methods that are borrowed from machine learning to feed in methylation levels for lots of individuals of, at whose ages you know and say, please give me the magical, it's not magical, but, but the, the special combination of locations in the genome where if I know the methylation for a given individual, I can tell you how old it was with pretty high accuracy. And that's what people sort of broadly refer to as the epigenetic clock. 
is it like it's a recipe, or it's a formula, where if I have the methylation levels for a sample where I don't know the age, I can tell you the age pretty well. And that's because you start out at conception with very low levels of methylation that then increase over the life course in general? Mm, um, at some sites, that's true. Actually, in general, most places in the human genome or in the baboon genome are very highly methylated. Okay. And so if you're very highly methylated, I mean, there's only one way to go. This is a measure that has a floor and a ceiling of 0% and 100%. Right. So lots of those places that are highly methylated kind of will lose methylation with age. Mm. And ones that start off that are really low, which tend to be regions of the genome that actually are actively regulated, they tend to creep up over time. Okay. Um, and then there are other regions that are kind of in the, in the middle and they have sort of systematic increase because so it's kind of a complicated pattern okay. and it's a mix of those things. Okay. Lots of reasons, especially if you study wild animals, that you might, if you don't know how old your study subjects are, that you actually would really like to know that, right? It tells you about the age structure of the population and gives you ideas about, you know, life history milestones, all that sort of stuff. But then there are populations like the one that I study, the baboons, where you actually know how old they are, by and large. Um, and in human populations, where a lot of this stuff was first developed, you often know how old the individuals in your sample are. So you might not be so interested in that. Instead, you might be interested in the question of, well, what if you happen to be, you're a baboon that's 10 years old, and you do this prediction, and it's actually a bit wrong, right? It says, well, you actually look like, I think you're 11 years old. The question is, does that provide value for us in understanding something about the condition or the likely lifespan of that animal that we don't get from just knowing it's 10 years old? Does it have the likelihood of dying that an 11-year-old in fact has? That would be super interesting to us because it starts to get to questions beyond just age about animal quality, condition, what affects the condition of those animals and so on. And that's been something that has been really important to, to people who study human populations too, and you can imagine why. And in fact, I think most of us know in our own lives, people who you go, wow, you know, that friend of mine is 80, but he is so vibrant, he's in such good shape. Really, he looks like a 60-year-old. Or my other friend just has experienced a lot of deep tragedy and trauma in her recent life, and even though She's 50, you know, she carries herself like a much older woman. That's what we're getting at, because we think those things might actually be meaningful for vulnerability to disease or vulnerability to mortality, and we're trying to quantify that. So what you kind of hope, right, is that your epigenetic clock predicts age, but not too well. And the reason why it's not too well is because it's telling you something additional about what's going on in this animal. Yeah, yeah so a different way to say that, I guess, is you want it to be quite accurate at the population level, but the interesting variation from this perspective is how the individuals vary from the population average. Yeah, it's how they vary from, it's how a 10-year-old baboon looks a bit different from other 10-year-old baboons. I mean, one possibility is that's just what we would think about as technical and statistical noise. Like, sometimes you predict badly because you're not good at predicting, and that is not very interesting. But if but, you're not good at predicting because there's something actually about those individuals that leads to that deviation, then that becomes very interesting indeed. And there's evidence from humans that that's, that yeah. that's true. Yes, yes. There is evidence that looking old for age increases the risk of some types of disease and pathology. There is some evidence that for particular versions of this method that it predicts better than chance how long you're going to live. There's some evidence, you know, thinking about why you might look different than experiences early in life or during adulthood. You know, things that we think about as positive or negative environmental experiences seem to cause this sort of looking old for age or looking young for age. So quite useful, right? It might be useful to predict people's vulnerability to understand variation in vulnerability to other bad things happening before they happen. Okay, so now, how have you applied that kind of approach in baboons? 
Well, we already knew from earlier work we'd done in DNA methylation that there's like very strong age signatures in DNA methylation data. We even kind of think about this as a control. When we, when we create a data set, if they're not strong signatures in age, we're like, there's something wrong with our analysis. There's something, we mixed up labels or something like that. And so it seemed very plausible to us that we could create a baboon epigenetic block based on the DNA methylation data that we had, we had already been collecting. We fairly routinely collect genome scale DNA methylation data. And so this was work that was led by a graduate student of mine, Jordan Anderson, and a postdoc who used to work in my lab, Rachel Johnston. And so they just tried it out. And it turns out that, in fact, yes, you can create an epigenetic clock that predicts chronological age, the actual age of the baboons, that better for, for uh, females and males, and that there was deviation around it, which could have been because we had a bad clock, or it could have been because it was interesting. And so we set out to ask whether those deviations from prediction could be explained by any of the things that we already knew from all of the body of work on the baboons affect how well they do, like the big things, the big things that we thought were important. And those are things like, did lots of bad things happen to you early in life? When lots of bad things happen to baby baboons, they do not live as long on average in our population. That means in adulthood, lots yes. of bad things happen as babies, they grow up, they're adults, they die earlier. That's right. Yeah. Yep. Particularly for females, that's where we really studied this. Social relationships, because we know that females and males to some degree who have strong affiliative social relationships, that develop friendships, strong social bonds with other animals, they suffer lower mortality risk for whatever reason. And social status, because we know that being sort of high in the hierarchy or low in the hierarchy for baboons, which are highly, highly hierarchical species, both males and females form this very ladder-like hierarchy that we can perceive based on the behavioral data that we collect. We know that influences a lot of things, access to resources, whether you're investing a lot in competition, physical competition for males, all that kind of stuff. So those are the three things that we thought we should look at these things. We should ask whether these things predict whether or not you're a bit old for age or you're a bit young for age based on your DNA methylation profiles. And largely what we what we found was, no, they don't. And so early life adversity, you know, it is a strong predictor, I should say, of later life survival. And however it's doing that, we're not picking it up through the epigenetic clock that we're using right now. But we did find one quite strong relationship, and that was between male social status and whether you looked old for age or young for age. And in particular, and perhaps surprisingly, if you are really grounded in the human literature, where high socioeconomic status is almost always beneficial in terms of health, it was the high status males who looked old for age, and the low status males who looked comparably young for age. And we had a couple cases, which was very valuable to us, where we saw males who actually changed their social status. We had repeated samples for them. If those high social status males lost status, they stopped looking so old for age. And interestingly, in completely separate work, Susan Alberts had done this analysis of social status in males and mortality risk, purely demographic analysis with no, no molecular data. And, you know, in this like lovely convergence, they showed that high-status males, in fact, look like they have a slightly elevated mortality risk. So that converges with our observation that they kind of look old for age. Very stressful to be a high-ranking male. Well, yes, although I want to say that when we say it's very stressful to be a, a high-ranking male, I don't mean it's because they, you know, what is it like? heavy is the head who wears the crown sort of thing. It's not that they're overburdened with responsibilities of leadership. That's not what they're doing. What they're doing is trying to keep other males away from mating opportunities and keep themselves in a high status position. And they have to do that by maintaining high physical condition and being able to outfight other males when they challenge them. So perhaps a very different way of thinking about attaining and maintaining high status than is typical in many human societies we think about. 
we have some other evidence that from from different studies that high status males also tend to have higher activity of genes involved in inflammation. And so the way I kind of tentatively think about this is that they may be doing things physiologically inside their bodies that are not necessarily great for their physical condition long term, but that are actually really appropriate to being in a highly competitive environment where they may actually have to engage in things like wound healing, in which case you actually want, you know, inflammatory processes to, to work well. And this investment is probably worth it, given that in baboons, it's really the highest ranking males who have opportunities to mate and leave offspring behind. So one of those places where there may be a bit of a rub, you know, I think probably in some of the things I've said to you already, I've kind of equated health and fitness because, you know, especially for females, I will say this is true for females, living a long time is very, very good for your fitness. But for males, I think this might be a place where doing what you should do from a, a selective standpoint, which is to become high ranking, is not necessarily going to be completely directionally congruent with maintaining long-term condition. And across a really quite wide range of mammals, yeah. males die earlier. That's right. right. Yep, yep. But especially mammals that are kind of like baboons, or sometimes less extreme, where males compete quite intensively for reproductive opportunities. And as a consequence, we believe, are often much larger or physically differentiated from, from females. And of course, in humans, men die earlier than women, too, pretty systematically. And we do have some degree of what biologists call sexual dimorphism, right? Differences in size between males and females. So, yeah. So I would expect to see that kind of the pattern that we observed perhaps replicated in species where males really have to undergo a lot of physical competition where it's their individual condition and individual traits that determine their mating opportunities. So one of the things is you, you work at the intersection of a lot of different ways that scientists think and kind of study systems that they follow. So you've interacted with a ton of human geneticists. Yeah. You've interacted with a lot of social scientists. Yeah. Anthropologists. Yeah. And you interact with a lot of basic biologists. Yeah. I guess one question is, how do you do that? And, and then second, what do you, what, what kind of thing benefits do you get from, from doing that? Why is it important? Okay. Well, I do it because I like it. It's the sort of science that I enjoy most. And I find it really interesting to pick up perspectives and methods from different fields. Since I'm starting by answering in the self-interested way, I do it because for a very long time, and the way this is manifested has been different, but from the very early stages of my career, I wanted to understand social relationships and social behavior, and I wanted to do it through the lens of genetics, because for me, genetics and genetic inheritance and evolutionary and population genetic processes were sort of the rules of evolution and the social behavior stuff was the thing that was really interesting to me in terms of what came out of it. And then increasingly over time, as we've kind of talked about, I thought, oh, actually, social behavior determines a lot of that sort of stuff, too, regardless. So I ended up interacting with these people because they're people who know about various aspects of that kind of puzzle. And I like it. And I find it rewarding. And it's what motivates me in science. How do I do it? Well, one is by having really fantastic collaborators and students who are interested in, who, especially collaborators, have deep, deep knowledge in one or several of those areas. Like my closest collaborators include people who are just fantastic behavioral ecologists and people who are fantastic evolutionary geneticists and people who are fantastic statistical geneticists and all, you know, like, and you sort of build your, your own little society, you build your social relationships academically that way. And then I want to say I do it by being a, a like a bit of a dilettante, right? Like I just, um, I don't have the depth in any of those areas that I see some of my collaborators have. And it's a trade-off because our lives are really limited. 
but some of my students do, right? And they really go deeply in a particular direction. And so I get to reap the benefits of that and learn from them and perhaps give them ideas that come from something that they're not aware of. So I guess it's that way. And also a willingness to talk to anybody who's been interested in my work. And that's gotten me to have a lot of conversations that I think that maybe are less common, you know, for people who focus on, on one field. So I've gotten to go to conferences that are really on the biology of how the genome works, and I've gotten to go to conferences on power, status, and influence in that was mostly social psychology, I think, that that one, and conferences on human demography, where they're very concerned with the demographic transition and impending demographic crises. That was the one, by the way, that's the conference I've gone to where the most like senior governmental officials came. And I was like, oh, right, this is important to people here in China. Right, okay, got it. Because typically you go to an animal behavior conference and you don't get a high-level government official. <laughs> and I just, that's so fun for me. It's my motivation for, for having an academic lifestyle. And so when people say, you know, talk to me about this. Maybe I think this is related. And, you know, maybe it's related to this kind of idea or that kind of idea. That's worked out so far. So I want to talk a little bit about your recent transition to being director of the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology, because it's a really unique position and a really unique approach that institutions take to funding and organizing science. So just kind of walk us through what it is, what the kind of that system is like, what the structure is like, and yeah. then and then a view of what you want to do there. Okay. So the Max Planck Society is sort of, it's a set of different institutes. They're about 85-ish. And each institute is dedicated to a particular area of knowledge. It's quite broad. There's institutes that are devoted to aspects of the law, institutes that are devoted to specific areas of, of chemistry or mathematics, neuroscience. And my institute, as you mentioned, is the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology. And so... By and large, everybody at the Institute has interests in human or primate evolution and how to contextualize our lineage in, in the world, right, from, a, from an evolutionary and biological perspective. And so each institute is divided up into departments. So at my institute, for example, there's a linguistics department and there's an evolutionary genetics department and there's an archaeogenetics department and there's a human behavioral ecology and culture department and then there's a psychologist. And I, in particular, study primate behavior and evolution. My department is the Department of Primate Behavior and Evolution, but we also like non-primates. So I also like non-primates. And so what the Max Planck Society does is give you a, a pretty generous budget and infrastructure to take the themes that you think are most important in science and structure a set of people within a department to pursue those themes with a great deal of freedom and security. So basically they say you can have a budget and you can have it until we make you retire at age 67 and we'd like to see you do really interesting and impactful things with it and we won't ask you to do it in a particular way. So that gives you a lot of freedom, and I think the idea is that it can support, you know, high-resource-intensive science, but it can also support slow-burn science, you know, things that just wouldn't pay off in the timescale of a single grant that you need maybe 10 years or more to do. And, I mean, there's research at my institute that I think is now the textbook example of that, the founding director of my institute was Fonte Pavo, who is perhaps best known for sequencing the Neanderthal genome and revolutionizing our concept of human evolution. It turns out it takes a really long time to figure out how to do that technologically and analytically. And so the society gave me the resources to do that. So I just started my department. I'm trying to figure out structure as it goes, perhaps relevant to the previous conversation I'm very interested in having a department 
where people will interact very regularly. They study primate phenotypes and evolution and behavior from a functional genomics perspective, you know, very lab-based, very experimental, using the latest technologies to probe how genes turn into phenotype. I'm very interested in having people who are very grounded in fieldwork and classical behavioral ecology. And I'm very interested in people who do population genetics. I'm very interested in people who think about the demography of, of animals. So, like, all the bits, I've been really, like, exposed now that we're talking about it. It's the bits and pieces of stuff that I have liked, but I want the people who have those depths and aren't so such dilettantes standing around me and talking to each other to do something that's really synthetic. That's, that's what I want. And I very much want to be able to close what I perceive as strong historical gaps between people who work on the organismal level especially in natural populations and people who work on genes and genomes. And I want to do that in ways that capacitates field work. For example, by making it more possible to do really rapid turnarounds or fairly cutting edge work directly at field sites because it can affect the types of observations that you do or because it means that we could potentially have immortal cells from the individuals that we study in the wild because it contributes to better capacity building in countries where we have field sites, all of those kinds of reasons. And I also want field studies to more directly motivate the things that are done with genes and genomes in the lab. And I suppose that's sort of relevant to our, our conversation on hybrids, right? Just I feel that these different perspectives have major advantages, but also major blind spots. And if you can put them together, we will have so much more of a soup-to-nuts perspective of how primates have evolved, what has selected them towards that, what the consequences of behavior are, how that relates to fitness, and how that shows up in long-term evolutionary time. I think it will help with maintaining the relevance of primate field studies in the future as well. So I want to build a little bit on one particular thing you said, which is the turnaround, doing complicated molecular work in the field. Yeah. So like, kind of step us through, like, you land in the Ambicelli, and before you've left, it's possible to sequence samples you've collected. Is that right? Yes, that's now increasingly possible. We've done a little bit of that, yes. Okay, and so that, you know, kind of step us through what that world looks like. And Well, um, what are, I would say one of the revolutions in studying animals in the wild, especially big animals that are hard to immobilize and all that sort of stuff, happened in the late 90s. And it was the ability to take samples non-invasively from animals and eventually derive some genetic data from them. Interesting, as an aside and, and relevant to, you know, the fact that I mentioned Santé Pablo a little bit ago, if you actually look at those original papers on wild animals, right, and the, these are like high-impact papers that are just like, we found some variable sites in wild animals. To the end, they're heavily, heavily influenced by what he and his co-workers were doing in terms of methods to get an ancient DNA. They really borrowed from each other at this very early stage. So that was cool. But to and do that... by that you mean like fecal and hair? Or... Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. That's the that... first identification of variable loci. If you read some of those papers, they'll say, well, we used the method published by Pavo et al., you know, when they were trying to get stuff out of mummies and whatever. So there's these long ties, actually, That's cool. that, that I think, you know, could be, can be, and I, we hope to resuscitate today at the Institute. So anyway, so you can do this sort of stuff, but it means you gotta collect all these samples and then you gotta package them up and you, you gotta get a bunch of permits and eventually ship them out of the country and eventually get them to somebody who can do that kind of work. And, and it's very typical for it to take years before a sample is collected to when the genetic data are produced from that to do basic things like genetic identification of the individual who contributed to it or um, to reconstruct who his mother was, or his father is, or so on. Those sort of basic things. Now there are some very lightweight, small-scale sequencing platforms that you can just carry with you in your pocket. 
and then run off a laptop. And people have been using these kinds of things, particularly this instrument produced by Oxford Nanopore called the Minion, in various different creative ways all over the world. And so we kind of reasoned, well, we can probably then just go to the field with the baboons and pick up some poop and bring it back to camp, you know, and extract some DNA from it in camp. You know, there you can do that in a reasonably, you know, again, sort of lightweight way. And then run it through these protocols and like, you know, plug it into the computer and sequence some some particular places in the genome that we thought was informative. So my student Jordan Anderson was really a driving force behind this. And it was, you know, a bit of spit and glue the first time we did it. Like there were steps in the protocol where all of a sudden we realized we were supposed to bring the temperature down to like 20 degrees. And it was definitely hotter than 20 degrees in Ambicelli in the room where he was doing this sort of stuff. But we have like a swamp cooler, a charcoal fridge, right, that you can dump water on and it has evaporative cooling. We keep, you know, veggies in it and stuff. And yet, you know, these protocols are already robust enough that we could do it. You know, I actually was not in the field at the time and he just sent me screenshots of sequences being produced from the sample that he had just, like, gotten from the field the day before. How'd that feel? Pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so there are, some, there are some kinks we need to work out to really deploy this on sort of an industrial regular production scale. But I really fully believe it's possible now at, at field sites with relatively limited infrastructure to do the same kind of thing to just start knowing who dad was within a couple of days of being able to get a sample, right? It changes the limitations to like, so how soon can you get a sample? Yeah, I think that's totally, totally doable. So like now, for example, if you want to go study paternal behavior, couldn't do it really. I mean, you could guess, you could guess, you could guess right? who dad and was. then in the future, you'd hope to match your, your behavioral samples, which you took from a lot of animals. So it turned out weren't always the father That's and right. you have to throw those away. That's right. I can see how that would open a lot of doors. I hope so. There are reasons that field biologists who have these kinds of problems really, really want to do this to go through everything that is required to ship samples out of country and get that stuff done. And so we're real behind on, you know, paternities or whatever for a given field population. That's a reason, right? But it's like a reason that nobody else scientifically cares about. That's like, it seems like your problem reason. So it could accelerate our science, but it's not compelling for the science itself, even though we might think it's important. So I've been thinking about, you know, just sort of strategically, when the first papers come out about doing this sort of stuff, well, of course, we'll describe the methods and provide protocols and recommendations and stuff. But scientifically, just to get people to look at it, to read it, and to, to feel like, wow, this might be powerful beyond it saves me trouble. I'd love to think about the best illustration of what that scientifically capacitates that we couldn't do before. So I don't have an answer to that. I'm asking anybody who wants to email me to tell me about a good idea and then you know, maybe we'll try to do it in your system then. Does it have to be powered by a computer? Can you, can you power it with USB-C from your phone? The software needs this, a computer. And you because also... Because there's too much, it takes too much RAM or... Um, it's not so much the RAM. It's that the software was written for a, a laptop and what it does take is storage space. You got to store all those sequences somewhere. Right? Okay, yeah. Even sure. if you don't want to process them live. Yeah, but a huge micro SD card and a high RAM phone, maybe with with some with someone writing an app for it. Maybe, yeah, maybe, yes. If you had an external place to store it, perhaps. Um, I have no idea. I don't know how much that gets The company you. is working on or not. Um, what is cool is that our PCR machine that we use in the field is is programmed on on the phone. So I have these pictures of Jordan that he's just staring at a phone, you know, looking like a, a Zoomer who is, you know, reading his social media posts. But he's actually standing next to our PCR machine, which is being plugged into a solar-powered battery. And he's programming the PCR program that runs completely off of phone control through Bluetooth. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, listeners, let Jenny know. Um, 
Jenny, your email address? Sure. It's jtung, J-T-U-N-G, at eva.mpg.de or jt5 at duke.edu. Great. Well, we've arrived at the airport. We're returning our rental car. Maybe we'll just call thank you. See, and I'm on the wrong side of the road with a car <laughs> driving straight at us. So maybe this is a good place to, uh, to leave things. Yes, uh, because I think we need to figure out how to drop our car off. Yeah, it's a little bit confusing. So, Jenny, yeah. uh, thanks so much for taking time. Sure. It was fun talking to you. We've arrived at the airport. We're eating lunch. I'm drinking a chocolate milkshake. It's the second airport, actually. Mm. In Johannesburg. I've ordered pineapple pizza. Mm -hmm. So, Jenny, mm -hmm. you received in 2019 um, the MacArthur Fellowship. Mm -hmm. Uh, which colloquially is known by many as the Genius Award. And, and I'm, I understand there's a somewhat humorous story about how you heard about it. What was it like when you found out about the MacArthur Fellowship? What was it like when they called you? When they called you. Sorry. <laughs> because when I found out, I was very, very pleased. Um, it just took me a while to find out. Uh -huh. And it's because I don't answer my phone when I don't know who's calling me. Which I think is a problem they have a lot now. So they just have to trick people into actually answering the phone. So they said they called for, you know, a while, a few times. And then they finally just sent me an email that said, you know, we have this granting program, which they do. It's a really great thing um, called 100 and Change, um, that they solicit grants for, for major change in the world. And you know, so we, want your, your, we want your input on this. And of course I'm going to provide my input on what the MacArthur Foundation wants to know about where they should give their hundreds of millions of, of dollars. And so I said, sure. And they said, can we call you today? Which is a little bit unusual. And I said... <laughs> Yeah, I was in between teaching two courses, and I said, I've got 15 minutes between these two two courses. And they called, and they said, actually, we just lied to you. And are you familiar with the MacArthur you know, fellowships? And I said, yes, I am. And they said, well, we want to call you and let you know. This is something that we decided to award you. And then they asked me some very basic questions about my name and my address which I remember literally picking up a pen and writing it down as I, as I was talking to them so I didn't say anything wrong. And uh, they said, they told me later, they said, you were hard to get a hold of. Not the hardest. We've actually had to arrange meetings at coffee shops where we, like, took people by surprise before. Um, but they did say, and this, you know, they said you were harder to get a hold of than Lin-Manuel Miranda. And I was like, that is probably the closest proximity I will ever have to Lin-Manuel Miranda. So, yeah, that's what happened. I must have felt very validating. Um, I mean, it was very unexpected. And, yes, I suppose so. I mean, what I actually did is, I mean, I knew about it. I had some familiarity with it. I, I actually knew some other people who had won it in the past. But I didn't actually know that much about the selection process. And, and you know, actually, the more you learn about it, the more you're like, this is a mistake. Especially, I mean, I think for scientists, or at least for me, when you look at the artists and who have been given that kind of award, because I think what they do is magical. I don't understand it at all. And I do understand how scientists do their work. And, you know, I'm glad that I do work that is interesting to, to people more broadly than my immediate field. But so do so many people. You know, I actually remember seeing a talk. I mean, basically I spent the whole rest of that semester watching people give brilliant talks in the department and being like, they should probably do this. They should probably do this. And then, of course, they tell you can't tell anybody. You, tell, you can tell one person. One, you can tell one person. And who did you tell? <laughs> <laughs> Not like many. I don't know if Two I... Two people, I, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I told my husband. Uh -huh. And I told um, my parents. That's like three people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. So you can't tell anybody for a month. Okay. Yeah. When I heard about it, everyone was like, well, yeah. <laughs> it's like, you know, I feel like it was very unsurprising to other people. 
Well, thank you for that. That's very kind. Anyways. Well, thanks for humoring me because it's a fun story. Sure. Great. The Animal Behavior Podcast is created by a talented team of animal behavior researchers. We have three excellent content editors, Nico Hensley, an NSF postdoctoral fellow studying the evolution of neurosensory systems and their impact on animal communication and speciation at Cornell University. Camilla Chenney, who studies tool use, object play, and animal innovation in non-human primates. And Logan James, a postdoctoral fellow at the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute studying acoustic communication in frogs and birds. Our communications director is Casey Patmore a PhD student at the University of Edinburgh studying the behavior of burying beetles. You can follow us on Twitter at AnimalBehavePod or check out our website at AnimalBehaviorPod.com. Our education team makes lesson plans and classroom materials that you can incorporate into your undergraduate classes. You can find those materials on our website. The education team is Emily McLean, an assistant professor of biology at Oxford College at Emory University. Georgia Lambert, a PhD candidate studying parental cooperation in burying beetles at the University of Edinburgh, and Smile Chaudhry, a recent Master of Research graduate in Biological Sciences from the University of Exeter, who worked on camouflage and escape responses in green shore crabs. Our sound director is Brian Lovell, a PhD candidate studying the evolution of acoustic signals in Jimena Bernal's lab at Purdue University. This season, I'll be recording my side of most conversations in the Cornell Broadcast Studios with engineering support from Bert Odom-Reed. Our art is all produced by animal behavior researchers. Our logo was designed by Adelaine Johan Montey. Our theme music is by Sally Street. And transitions are by Andre Gonzolsch. I direct and host the show along with my co-host, Amy Strauss. We receive financial support from the Animal Behavior Society. Finally... If you like the show, then please help us by telling someone else about the show and leave us a rating or review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. See you next time.